who do you see most often? It's a bit of a riddle. It's a riddle. Who do you see most often? Spend the most time with on a daily basis, but tend to overlook, even though God says a lot about them. Anybody? I can't read lips. No, not the spirit. It's a very spiritual answer. No, uh, the answer is your neighbor. Like each other. I thought about, did you raise your hand? Did you, oh, no. You missed, was that, I missed that? Or like, I, you didn't hear? Okay. No. Uh, I, I attempted over the last two days to count the number of people I ran into that was my neighbor. Not, not my neighbor next door, but like anyone I ran into would be my neighbor. And I quickly lost count after like an hour because I was just overwhelmed by all the people that I came in contact on a daily basis. And I try to avoid people. Generally speaking, that's who I am. I try to avoid people. And I was still overwhelmed by the amount of people I came in contact with every day. The reality is, every day you run into hundreds or thousands of people. You're surrounded by them. And we tend to be blind to them. And the Bible has a lot to say about them. Okay? Our text is Luke 10, 25 to 37. I'm going to read. You can follow along up here. Uh, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go, and do likewise. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Great Father, we thank you for this word, this story, and pray that you would show us uh, great things about yourself, and even if it hurts, some honest things about ourself in this. Especially show us the goodness and the grace of the Lord Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Question for you, a moment of vulnerability. What's the worst that you've ever failed a test? And some of you are saying, I've never failed a test. Okay, forget you. Anybody else willing to admit the worst you've ever failed a test? We're all friends. Or you can like all put your heads down and close your eyes and admit it. Anybody? Shout it out. I got a 20. Can anyone beat a 20? Woo! It's a little early. Yeah? She got a one on our AP count test. Anybody else? I saw another hand. Anybody else? Yeah? I failed my driver's license. 
Two Trafalgar drivers test the first two. Uh, lots of fails. All right. Well, as it regards failure, I've got you all beat. So in uh, my senior year of high school, I was taking Latin 4 because I was a nerd. What? You were probably required to take Latin 4. Um, <laughs> and um, we had a new teacher that we didn't take seriously at all. And uh, he got our attention one day by dropping a pop quiz on us. Everyone in the class knew we were in grave trouble. I knew because I hadn't done any work for five or six weeks or paid attention. I hadn't done anything. And I was accustomed in this class to getting 99s and 100s on everything. At the end of my time in school, I got the Latin award, what that means. Uh, but I knew I was cooked on this pop quiz. Uh, nevertheless, I gave it a good old fighting try. I basically tried. I put some answers down. I, when I didn't know the answer, I put little blanks and like guesses. I even like attempted an extra credit answer when there was no extra credit. Um, you know, maybe this will pull me up to a 50 or something. It was a well-intentioned effort. Well, the next day we got our quizzes back. And uh, there's a bunch of 34s and 45s and whatever. And I think it was for dramatic effect because I was the prize pupil and probably mostly responsible for the laissez-faire attitude of the whole class during the first six weeks. For dramatic effect, he gives me my test last because everyone wants to see what I got. And I flipped it over and we were all surprised because I got a minus 12. <laughs> Say that again. Minus 12. A worse than a zero. See all those extra things that I tried to do to get extra credit? He counted those wrong, too. So I got more wrong than you could possibly get wrong. Yeah. There's a test in our text tonight. It's not a pop quiz, but it's a surprise. Because the tester, who is this lawyer we read about, he comes to test Jesus. And the surprise is that Jesus flips the test on him. And even though this lawyer is a prize pupil, he knows his stuff, he fails the test. He fails this test. And it's not like a little pop quiz like mine, the minus 12. I went on to get an A that semester, I'm pretty sure, because it was just a little pop quiz. Uh, this test is really important. The subject matter is eternal life. Like, what is real life now and whether or not I continue to exist with God for all eternity. It's, it's a big deal. You could argue it's the only test that really matters, and he fails it. And his bad news is our bad news. Because he's a sharp guy. He failed it. And uh, it's bad news for us doubly because I'm pretty convinced by the end of this story that no one passes this test. This is the test that no one can pass. It's not that the test itself is complicated. It's actually really simple. But sometimes simple things are really hard. And the extra bad news for us, and some of you have gotten used to this when you get your 20s and 30s, you still have hope. God doesn't grade on a curve. There's no curve here for your 30 or 40. We're all going to fail and there's no curve. And the test is very simple. Very simple. We must love our neighbor. That's it. That's it. We must love our neighbor. And we're going to see that we fail. So real quickly, uh, as, a, as an overview of the outline or whatever, if you're a note taker, I don't think any of you are note takers. Why do I do this to myself? Um, Three points nevertheless. The exam, the exemplary failures, and then an unexpected neighbor.
So uh, what we find first is an exam of eternal significance. And when I came up with that phrase, exam of eternal significance, I actually imagined saying it and hearing it echo. Exam of eternal significance. No, no echo. Anyway, it sounds like it should, right? Uh, It's a very important exam. Um, And it begins with this lawyer's suspicion in verse 25. This lawyer, this guy who knows the Old Testament very well, this faithful Jewish scholar, uh, is suspicious of Jesus and he wants to test Jesus. So he comes to Jesus and he treats him with respect even though he's suspicious, which means I think he's a little bit deceitful. He's got an agenda and asks Jesus a test. What do you have to do to get eternal life? Uh, Jesus replies with a question. And uh, this whole reply with a question to a question reminds me of this little Woody Allen thing. Anybody here know who Woody Allen is anymore? It's like three of you. It's about, okay, that's good. Well, I thought. Uh, there's a scene in one of his movies where an inquirer asks a rabbi, Rabbi, why do rabbis always answer questions with a question? And the rabbi thinks about it for a moment and says, why shouldn't a rabbi always answer a question with a question? And that's exactly what we have here. Question to Jesus. Jesus immediately turns around and asks a question. What do you read? What's your understanding of the law? And uh, the guy, the lawyer, gives a great answer in verse 27. Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, strength. This is Deuteronomy 5 and 6. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19. In fact, this is actually Jesus' answer. In another place in the New Testament, Matthew 22, someone asked Jesus this question. This is the answer he gives. He gives the right answer. He's correct. And Jesus says, correct. Good. You got the short answer part of the exam right. Now, do this and live. He got the exam right, right? So why are we still talking? And why are there nine more verses? He answered the question and Jesus said he was right. Why are we still here? Why why does this story go on? It's because the lawyer becomes immediately suspicious of his answer and what it involves. When Jesus says, do this and live, he turns the short answer exam into a lab. Into a life lab. I might be able to to give the short answer or the short essay or even answer, as my professors used to call it, the essay from hell or the mother of all essays. This scholar could probably answer the mother of all essays. But Jesus has turned it into a lab. When he says, go do this and live, he knows he's supposed to do it. And he's now suspicious about his ability to do it. And so he asks another question. Who's my neighbor? And he's moving from suspicion of Jesus to to justifying himself, to self-justification. That's the the word we find here in 26 and 27. Lost my place. But uh, you can find it up there somewhere. He he basically asked Jesus out of trying to, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Why is he asking that question? It's because he's trying to do probably two things at once. One, he's desperately hoping for a good answer. A good answer for him and for us would be, well, whoever you like. You know, your family and your friends. People like you. Like, go love the people that you like to love. The easy ones. He's hoping for an answer like that. I don't think he's actually optimistic he's going to get that answer. But he's hoping, you know, it's this narrow group of people that he naturally easily loves. Um, His hope is that somehow 
the demands of God's laws will be lowered and the scope of God's demands will be limited. So instead of having to love like all of you that much, I can just love you like this much. Instead of having to love all of you, I can just like, man, not you guys. John's, John's pretty easy to love. He's a little maintenance. I said, like, love that one. Just that much. It's easy. That's what he's hoping for. To lower the, the standards, to limit the scope, so that he can succeed. So he can succeed. That's his hope. And uh, frankly, we do this with all of God's laws. You know, you can you go read the Sermon on the Mount if you want. Matthew 5, that's what's going on. Uh, you know, you've heard it say, don't murder. And we think that means, like, don't stab someone. And Jesus says, no, in your heart, you shouldn't even think about murdering them or say bad things about them. Don't commit adultery. I would never sleep with someone's spouse. No, it means more than that. Like, don't even lust after them. So we are always trying to lower the demands and limit the scope. Uh, this is sort of popular, actually, in some ways, with the nailed it um, memes and, and gifs that we see. You know, you have this wonderful, like, cake or thing that's been made and someone tries to replicate it and it looks like a five-year-old did it. Like, is that a, is that a princess's face or not? It's, and they'll put the nailed it stamp on it. Not even close. And that's what we try to do. God's law is this beautiful, perfect thing. And we just sort of muddle it up and lower the standard and say, nailed it. God's standard's like here, and we put it down and jump an inch over it. Nailed it. That's uh, what we're doing. That's what the lawyer's hoping for. Uh, like the lawyer, this should be a little disconcerting to us all. We can say the right thing. We can give the right answer and still be wrong. We can give the right answer and still fail the test. So Christianity, at the heart of it, is not about just knowing the right answers or doing the right things. At the heart of it, Christianity is about right relating. It's about loving God and loving neighbor. That's relational. It involves knowing and it involves doing, but it involves relating. And so you can know all the right answers and even know what to do and still fail to do this um, in the lab of life. Now, it's possible that some of you are thinking, lab of life, bring it on. I'm killing life. I love my neighbor. I treat people well. And uh, this is where Jesus tells us a story and tells this man a story as well to, uh, to show us what's really going on. And what we have here is a, a pretty cool story. Uh, and so in verse 30, we, we meet this man. We don't know anything about him except for he's a man. We don't know what kind of man, a good man, a bad man, what kind of country he's from. We don't know anything about him except that he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, or maybe the other way around. Um, and on the way, he's beaten by robbers and left half for dead. And as Jesus was telling the story, if there were a crowd, there's probably not, he's just talking to this one guy, but if there were a crowd, all the crowd would be like, ooh, I know that stretch of road, it's a dangerous place. Because Jesus is talking about something very real, actually. 17 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho, mostly downhill, he would be going down, and it was a dangerous stretch of road, well known for bandits and robbers, hanging out on the cliffs of the side of the road, waylaying people as they're walking, beating them and leaving them for half dead. This is a very realistic story, in other words. So um, we don't really know much about this guy except for he's beaten and left for half dead. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You probably haven't. I've come close. Never really been beaten and left for dead. But close, sort of, speaking, in America, anyway. Uh, so like... 
12 years ago or so, I was traveling from St. Louis to Virginia uh, late, late, late one Friday night with my, like, been married for like four months wife. And uh, it was like 1.30 in the morning. It was a long drive. We were exhausted. She was driving. We were driving some terrible piece of junk Ford Escort from like the mid-90s. It's amazing it held together during this incident. Anyway, I'm asleep in the passenger seat. All of a sudden, I'm jolted violently awake. We're on the interstate. And uh, my first thought is, brace for impact. We're flying into the trees. That was my first thought, like... I hope I survived this. Um, and it wasn't that dramatic, actually. Uh, she had briefly drifted off asleep and drifted off the side of the road. And we had hit about 15 to 20 yards of potholes. Like a whole line of potholes. Like, it was more like a ditch. It was still on the road, <laughs> on the side of the road. Like not yet off the shoulder. But like 20 yards of, if you think I'm exaggerating, you'll wait. So I get out of the car, we're still alive, I'm grateful, and I'm like, we probably got a flat. I go to the right side of the car and look, front tire flat. I'm like, okay, well, we got a spare. I look more carefully, front wheel bent. Hmm, can't fix that. Well, I got a spare, it's okay. Go to the back, look down, rear wheel flat, rear wheel bent. No one has two spares in their car, okay? We were on a very rural stretch of West Virginia interstate at 1.30 in the morning. So my first thought is like, who in the world is going to stop for us? And the answer is, no one. No one, no one is going to stop for you at 1.30 in the morning on a rural stretch of West Virginia interstate. In fact, we waited for an hour and a half. It's not that there was no traffic, it's that no one was wanting to stop. Because it was dangerous to them. They were concerned for their own safety. Eventually, one trucker going by called another trucker going the other way. And so that trucker finally stopped and said, no one's ever going to stop for you. Thanks, guy. Uh, where can we walk to? He's like, you're in the middle of nowhere. You can't walk anywhere. Um, and he called the professionals to come and save us. By the way, the professionals were ex-convicts who uh, were trained to do this job. And I'm very thankful for the ex-convicts that do this job. They came and, and helped us. By helped us, I mean carried us to a gas station where we slept on the table for a while until my dad drove six hours to come and get us. So um, fortunately, this is, a, this is a lesson. Don't drive through West Virginia late at night. Um, fortunately, this guy right here has some professionals on the way. Professionals that typically care for people, like a priest and a Levite. You know, God's people. They're coming. In verse 31, the priest draws near, and perhaps surprise to you, he sees the guy and keeps going. Levite, who serves in the temple, likewise draws near. He actually takes a step closer, takes a closer look at scenes based on the verb, and keeps going. Uh, these are exemplary failures. They're great men who are great failures. And they're examples of how we fail, actually. So how do we understand? I think by understanding why they fail to care for this guy, we'll learn a little bit about ourselves. Uh, first of all, they're full of excuses. You don't hear their excuses, but they're full of them. And uh, it's not hard for me to imagine what they are. The, the priest, if he was going to the temple, would have been concerned that this guy, and who knows what kind of guy he is, could be dead. That would make him ritually unclean. He wouldn't be able to do his job for a week. It would be humiliating. Or he could be a Gentile, which would also make him unclean. He wouldn't be able to do his job for a week. 
You don't want to show up and not be able to do your job. If he was going home from the temple back, he'd show up. Hey, how was your, we're so proud of you. You're a priest. It's wonderful. Uh, I'm ritually unclean and uh, I have to go live by myself out in the woods for a week. Like, it would have been humiliating for him. He, he's supposed to be different, holy, and clean. And he was afraid of not being able to do his job and of the social consequences of being um, contaminated socially in some ways. The Levite didn't have as many of these concerns. I think what the Levite simply could have... Part of what could explain his behavior is... Uh, Simply following the priest. If he was following the priest and saw this priest, who's like a moral exemplar, walk right past him, this man in need, it would have been really easy for the Levite to say, the priest is an expert in God and God's law. He just walked right past that guy. Maybe I should walk right past him too. And they have other concerns, other legitimate concerns. You know, this guy's laying in the road beaten. Why? Well, this is a dangerous road. The people that beat him might still be here. Like, waiting to beat me. I'll bend over and help this guy. They'll attack me. And, and helping this person takes time, energy, resources. There are all these reasons, excuses, why they don't help. And so they go on. They're full of excuses. They also are lacking something very important. They lack any compassion. It's clear in the text they see the guy. They see him. They see he's a human. And it does not move them in any way to move toward the guy. Uh, they're able to look at him and walk away for all we can tell without a pang of conscience or an apology. Uh, they had the resources to help this guy. The Levite could have at least administered first aid. The priest, being wealthy, was probably on an animal. Could have picked the guy up, put him on the animal, taken him to the end. Both of them failed to do so. And uh, partly, I think, what's going on is here is they, they see, but they fail to see. They see this guy, but they don't see a human in a way that moves them in compassion. Um, I had a couple of friends. They weren't roommates. They were roommates to one another, but not to me. And uh, this is a weird story, but it makes sense. Hang with me. So uh, one of them, Chris, is just one of those perpetually nice people. So nice, in fact, that you wonder if he's actually human or not. Like, are you a robot, an alien? Why are you always so... You know about someone who's so nice all the time... You wonder, like, do you go home and, like, I don't know, kick your dog or something? Like, there's just no malice. No, there's nothing. Like, you just sort of wonder, like, there's got to be something you do wrong, right? That was, that was Chris. He's just, like, the nicest guy ever. Um, and his roommate, Dan, had begun to notice that Chris was having some pretty strange behavior. And one evening, they lived in an apartment together, uh, Dan passed Chris in the hallway right outside their room. And Chris didn't acknowledge him at all. Didn't acknowledge him in the lead. Not even like a head nod, not a hey, anything. And uh, Dan turned around and called him on. And he said this. He said, Chris, did you even see me? And uh, Chris, this really nice kid, just sort of laughed and made some lame excuse. The reality is he did not see him. And about a day or two later, Chris began to have a number of seizures. We took him to the hospital and revealed he had a tumor. That, uh, besides causing all kinds of other things, like, I'm not going to say what else. Uh, some of them are a little embarrassing. But uh, had infected his vision and basically robbed him of his peripheral vision. But at such a rate that he didn't know he was losing it. In other words, his inability to see was now normal. He actually did not see his roommate in the hallway. Walked right past him, didn't see him. But didn't realize he couldn't see anymore. 
You get the picture? That's what happened? In some ways, I think that's what happens to us. We have the ability to not see the people around us and to call it normal. Um, and that's, that's really bad news for us, for the world around us. Um, we live in a culture where it's okay, even normal, not to see others, especially people in need. I, I don't want to beat up on you or college students in general. I like you. That's why I keep doing this job. I like college students, so I keep doing this job. But four years ago, a study came out um, arguing that students today are 40% less empathetic than 40 years ago. Meaning, you just don't care about people as much as your peers did 40 years ago. As much as your parents may have done. Um, And uh, for the most part... It's not just you. I think this is true of our culture. What we've come to embrace as a culture is it's okay for us not to see and care for others. We'll trust that to the politicians and the professionals. We'll let them do it. Seriously. We expect our politicians and our professionals to take care of everyone. And we don't feel like it's our responsibility. And again, that's really bad news for the world around us. And that's really bad news for us as well. And so a couple questions for you real quick. Who are you neglecting? Who do you walk right past every day without seeing? Who of the hurting do you walk right past every day without moving towards? You're surrounded by neighbors, roommates, sweetmates, classmates, floormates, and you know some of them are hurting. I mean, some of them you don't see, of course, but some of them you know are hurting, and you just lack the care and compassion to move toward them. Some of you, you have excuses. I know you have, I have excuses too. Um, but we have our excuses. We're too busy. Those people are too different. It's not my job. It's someone else's. I wouldn't know what to do. Some of those are, some of those are legitimate. But they're not legitimate enough to keep you from moving toward the people around you. I think the basic reality is this. And if you're not willing to be honest about it, I am about myself. It's simply this. Boil it down on a daily basis. The reason I neglect my neighbor and fail to see them is simple. My comfort, my reputation, and my agenda are more important than the people around me. To me. And I'm pretty sure that's true of you. On a daily basis, we simply think that our comfort and our agenda is more important than the people around us. And... This is sort of default in the back. We think God's okay with that. We don't really let God cross us on that. I mean, if you disagree, then every night do you go and say, God, forgive me for not caring about the people around me? Probably not. We just sort of think, it's okay. God knows I'm busy. He'll forgive me. God's not okay with the fact that we neglect our neighbors. The good news is the story's not over. Someone does care, someone does see, someone does move and act, and it's someone very unexpected. So if you're listening to this story in the first century, and Jesus is telling this, and uh, the priest goes by, you'd be surprised. The Levite goes by, and if you're a good story listener, you'd be thinking, like, I know where he's going. This someone's going to win the day, and the, and the guy that's going to win the day is going to be the, like, the little guy. These are like the professionals, but like the everyday Joe, you know, like the Rocky of the story, like, just a normal dude. He's going to save the day. Just some normal dude like me. He's going to be the one that saves it. And Jesus throws a complete surprise, a curveball, and drops in the most hated person he possibly could. A Samaritan. Um, 
if you're not familiar with the deep antipathy that Jews had for Samaritans, this little quote will do it. Samaritans, this is not my quote, this is from someone describing their relationship. Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues. The petition was daily offered up, praying that God, uh, praying God that the Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. Let me clarify that if you didn't get it. Almost every day, faithful Jews, when they went to the synagogue, would pray that Samaritans would go to hell. Okay? That's a fairly faithful, straight paraphrase. These people hated each other for centuries. And Jesus drops this Samaritan right in the middle of the story. Right in the middle of the story is the unexpected neighbor. What does he do? Well, he does what the priest and Levite do. He sees this man. But he has compassion. He draws near. He has compassion. He's, it's a weird word. He's deeply moved. Internally, emotionally. And he cannot but help moving toward this man in outward action. So he cares for him in verse 34. He binds his wounds. He does what the Levite could do. He puts him on his animal and takes him to the inn, which is what the priest could have done. He did what he could do. He cared for the man. And it cost him a lot, actually. I'm going I'm to actually press this one home a lot. This was no easy thing for him to do. To do this. Um, there was still the threat of robbers. I mean, there's a guy right here who just got beat half to death. They could do it to me. Moreover, I'm a hated Samaritan. They could really do it to me. Moreover, I'm moving more slowly because I've got like a half dead guy on my horse. They could really do it to me. He takes that risk. He uh, takes the cost of caring for this guy by going to an inn and providing for his care long term. When, when it says inn, you shouldn't think like the Marriott or the Holiday Inn here in town where your parents stay on the visit. You should think more like those one-story shady uh, inns on the way out of town on 22 right beside the strip club. Like That's the kind of inn we're talking about. Super shady, where you expect to get ripped off. And if you're in a Samaritan, you especially expect to get ripped off. And uh, there's the cost of that, of, of effort, of time, of being ripped off. Of, and this is, this is the real kicker. This one's hard for you to imagine. The, uh, the cost of potentially being misunderstood. See, unless you've been like a minority in a majority culture, or like a, a party in a long-term, multi-century ethnic conflict, it's hard to imagine what I'm going to say next. But this is true. If you, as a Samaritan, showed up in a Jewish village with a guy half-beaten and said, Hey, I found this guy. Does he belong to you? And the family came out. And, of course, they wouldn't know anything had happened because there was no such thing as a cell phone back then. They, they would just simply, they wouldn't say, like, Oh, you're still alive. That's great. They'd be like, What happened to him? Who did this? There'd be rage. They'd say, Who did this to him? And you know what the first answer would be? You. You did this to him. That might seem completely irrational to you to think that they would blame the person that helped him and bought him. That's exactly what people will do when you have centuries of deep hate and mistrust. This is exactly what would have happened potentially to this guy. And he knew it. He knew it. And he did it anyway. That's the nature of the costly care the Samaritan gives. And this is what Jesus is saying it's like to be a neighbor. To care, to move in compassion towards someone with great cost. And so Jesus finishes the story and immediately turns back to the test in verse 36 and asks the man, so, here's the test, which one proved to be the neighbor? 
Well, it's pretty clear. You can be a dunce and get this one. The Samaritan. The Samaritan, of course. It's an easy answer, but more importantly is the question. Did you hear Jesus' question? Who proved to be a neighbor? Right then, the lawyer probably figured out something. What he figured out was, I've been asking the wrong question. The lawyer's question has been, who is my neighbor? So that I can limit the scope and lower the demand. Which of the five or six or ten people in the world am I supposed to love? And Jesus is saying, you've got the wrong question. Your responsibility is to be a neighbor. To be a neighbor to anyone and everything. In any circumstance, you are called to be the neighbor. To be the one that moves in care and compassion at great cost toward others. That's the test. That's what God says and means when he says you should love your neighbor as yourself. We're all neighbors. And you're supposed to love people like that. And I think the lawyer gets it at this point. So what's that look like for you? Well, simply put, it means loving your neighbor is not optional. If you're a Christian, you cannot opt out and say, I just don't like this part of Christianity. I don't want this version. I'd like the 101 version. This is the 101 version. Love God, love neighbor. Christianity 101. There is none other. This is what we're called to do. And you don't get to opt in to who you love and who you don't. You don't get to pick who your neighbor is. Second, I'm going to try and give you some... I know this is heavy. So I'm going to give you some real practical things to help you. You're excited, I can tell. Um, Practical things to help you. Keep your eyes open. You can't move toward your neighbor if you don't see them. We actually don't want to see. That's why we distract ourselves so often. Busyness is a distraction. Our phones are a distraction. We want to be distracted. Because experientially, you know when you see someone in care that to move toward them commits you to love them and involve yourself at great cost. And you don't want to do it. Well, if you're going to, move, if you're going to love your neighbor, you have to keep your eyes open. And you have to care. Uh, this may be a bit of an exposing question, but this is meant for all of you straight-A students. If you made the dean's list, let's put it that way. If you made the dean's list last year, or if you got like a 3.0 but spent no less than 10 hours a week playing video games, meaning you'd probably get a 3.5 if you were a serious student. Um, This question. You know your classes well. You know your subjects well. Do you know your neighbors well? Floor mates? If you live off campus, the people live next door? Do you know their names? Do you know where they're from? Do you know what they're interested in? Do you know what they care about? Do you care about the people around you? Compassion. Now, this one's hard. I can't give you any practical advice on compassion. I can't, like, sprinkle magic fairy dust on you that just gives you this inner movement toward people. So I'm just simply going to request that you pray for God to give you compassion. Care. That when you see people in need, you would be moved toward them. And then take action. And some of you are thinking, like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Well... Try something. I don't know. Ask them their name. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them how you can help. Invite them to a party. Invite them to lunch. Practice hospitality. Move toward them. But I'm pretty sure it will involve you taking the first step. 
And this is the most important step. Even if you forget everything else I said, this is the most important step. This is the thing you got to remember tonight. Step five, you need to know that you're going to fail. You absolutely must know that when you do this, you will fail. It's really important. If you don't realize that your efforts to love your neighbor will eventually lead to you failing, then uh, you're going to be like the Pharisee. You'll just constantly try to limit uh, the scope and lower the limits of what love means. You are going to fail. And that doesn't mean you should not try. You have to try. This is God's will for you if you're a Christian, to love God and love others. You have to try. And you are going to fail. And this is good news for you because it will be the end of all your efforts to justify yourself. It really will. Like when you try to love someone, you know, who's a sinner like you, it's really hard. And you learn, I can't do it. I need God's mercy. I need his help. This is actually how you grow and mature. It really is. And if you think you're a great person, you don't need God's mercy, this is the best test. Go and selflessly love people. Seriously, go try to selflessly love people and see how long it takes before you get absolutely exhausted and want to give up. So, um, that's good news. You can't justify yourself. That's great. It really is. And you have to keep trying anyway. That doesn't sound like good news to me, Derek. Here's some good news. There's another unexpected neighbor in the story. It's the last thing. We have this unexpected neighbor, the Samaritan, just dropped into the story. He's the hero. But if, if this lawyer could look up and see who he's talking to, Jesus, he'd say... It, it's you. Like you're, you're the unexpected neighbor, right? Like that's you. You're the outsider who appears from nowhere. You know, Jesus, like, came out of nowhere, like out of heaven, took flesh, drew near. You moved into the bad neighborhood. He lived in glory. He moved into the bad neighborhood to love people. And if you read through the life of Jesus, he can't help but see people in need and move toward them. He sees people and he has compassion. And he moves toward them, and he does so at great care. At a great cost. His life. He gives his life is the price of his care. Jesus is the great neighbor. And uh, if, if this lawyer could see it, it would be the key that changes his life. And if we can see it, it will be the key that changes our life. So Jesus is the great neighbor. He's the good Samaritan here. The question is, who are you in the story? Last question, who are you? You don't get to be Jesus. Sorry, don't give you the good Samaritan. Uh, I guess you could choose to be the robbers. I don't know why you would choose them. Or the innkeeper, you sleazeball. I don't know why you would be the innkeeper. Um, but you have some other options. You could be the priest, the Levite, which is just another form of the lawyer. You know the right answers, but you don't love and you can't move toward people. Or you could be this man on the side of the road, beaten and helpless. Which one are you? The reality is, on any given day, you're one or the other or both. Really. Like, I'm going to leave you with this. If you can see that, like the lawyer, you try to justify yourself, but you can't. You can't love God with your whole heart, and you can't love your neighbor as yourself, and you need God's mercy then you'll understand that you need Jesus to come into your life to forgive you and to give you his life and to change you and to teach you how to love. And if, like the beaten man, you realize 
I'm helpless here. I'm hopeless. I can't get to where I need to go. I can't help myself. I can't change myself. I need someone to come and pick me up and change me and carry me to life. Then, good news. There's a great neighbor, Jesus. That's what he loves to do. To come to people that are helpless and need help and pick them up and carry them to life. Friends, this is the neighbor we have. We have Jesus. He comes to us. Whether we're prideful lawyers or beaten by the road, by life, needy, He comes to us. And when we see who He is and who we are and our failure to love and accept Him, He comes in. And His love changes us and we slowly grow to love like He loves. All right, let's pray.